What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia-Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Laura Schul, the founder and CEO of Streetlight Data. Streetlight Data is a software and analytics company that uses vast troves of transportation data to help cities reshape their infrastructure. While at UC Berkeley, Laura got interested in giving EV owners more information about how they were driving their cars. She ended up uncovering a data goldmine in the process. Laura built a company that now processes over 100 billion data points and provides transportation and urban planners with a granular view of how roads, bike lanes, and sidewalks are being used. In this interview, I spoke with Laura about how Streetlight uses data to reimagine cities and about her transition from academia to entrepreneurship. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse headquarters in Oakland, California in 2019. Our friend, venture investor Emily Fritzi sets the scene. We've all been there. Stuck in traffic on the Bay Bridge, late to a meeting or event, You look at Google Maps on your phone, the minutes ticking up one by one as you sit anxious to get to where you urgently need to go. That's just one of the problems traffic analytics company Streetlight Data aims to solve. Streetlight Data collates anonymized information like signals from cell phones and GPS navigation systems from roughly 70 million devices and applies sophisticated algorithms to make it easy to determine where, when, and how groups of people travel through cities. Using streetlight data, a customer can see detailed maps of the percentage of travelers commuting from one city to another, final destinations, and routes they're most likely to use. The information is useful to customers beyond the transportation planning world. Small and large businesses are using streetlight data to help them decide where to open new locations, plan an event, or place billboard marketing for customers. The mobility sector is growing fast. According to a McKinsey report, since 2010, investors have poured over $200 billion into the mobility space, and micro-mobility startups have raised close to $6 billion in the last four years alone. In the future, the rise of all things mobility, like electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, electric autonomous vehicles, ride sharing, electric scooters, bikes, and more, will converge with an increasing number of distributed energy assets on the grid with variable electricity electricity loads. Streetlight Data's products that plan and optimize transportation will be more critical than ever. It's my pleasure to introduce Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse, and Laura Schul, founder and CEO of Streetlight Data, for the latest episode of What It Takes. (laughs) 
Laura, welcome to the new Powerhouse Headquarters and welcome to What It Takes. Thank you for having me. I'm so appreciative. Definitely. So the easiest and least introspective question of the night, uh, tell us what is Streetlight Data? Streetlight Data is a company that produces a software that allows somebody in the transportation industry to look up a fact about transportation behavior as easily as you might look up a fact on Wikipedia. So the reason that's important is because we have transportation that happens moving through streets, bike paths, pedestrian access paths, and that transportation happens on trillions of dollars worth of infrastructure. And every year we make trillions of dollars more infrastructure decisions. And those decisions historically have been supported by almost no data. It's one of the most shockingly unmeasured things around. Um, and transportation is critical. It's now the largest source of carbon emissions coming out of the U.S. economy. So our mission is to bring data to bear on the critical decisions around transportation infrastructure and policy so that decisions are better, smarter, greener, and hopefully uh, improving economic viability of our cities. Well said. So going back to how this all came to be, you grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Yes. And uh, I know both of your parents were corporate attorneys. So how did growing up uh, in your neighborhood shape who you are? And what was it like having not one but two high power corporate attorneys as parents? Uh, so I grew up uh, when I was little, very little, in a neighborhood in Richmond called The Fan, which is a fantastic neighborhood. And I didn't realize at the time how unusual that was. Uh, it was a neighborhood with lots of densely packed row houses, tons of young parents, tons of young kids. I had, you know, 18 best friends on my block, many of whom I'm still in touch with today, even though we, you know, became friends when we were two. And it was just this whole world of kids who could run around and play outside, run to the park, you know, run to the, there was this amazing limeade stand that was like the highlight of every day. You could go get a limeade at the sort of old-fashioned pharmacy. So it was a really beautiful urban mixed-use environment that was right next to a, a thriving uh, university, Virginia Commonwealth. So I grew up in an amazing neighborhood. Eventually, we moved a little further out of town, but I think that um, I didn't realize at the time, but it was really extraordinary to live in that kind of downtown but not hyper-urban environment, and it's definitely the type of environment I want to live in and I think a lot of people want to live in in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, the main thing about growing up with two corporate attorney parents, um, they both worked at separate firms because you're not allowed to be married. They were both at the same firm. Uh, you can be married to someone, just not each other at the firm. Um, <laughs> uh, and they were both ambitious, gunning for partner. They met in law school. They graduated in the same class. But the main thing is if you work at opposing firms, you can't talk about work at home. So we had this wonderful, exciting home environment where we could talk about all kinds of things all night, we were required to be at the dinner table from 6.30 to like 8, no exceptions, every night, and no one could talk about work. So we talked about everything else, and that was pretty fantastic. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to college at Yale, where you were the very first student to double major in literature and environmental engineering, which is quite the surprising and unexpected combination. Was that your plan going into Yale, or if not, how did that come to be? No, not at all my plan. Um, when I was in high school, I would definitely identify as an artsy person. I did literature, I would it was in the play, I was on the literary magazine, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I thought science was something you had to get a good grade at because, you know, I was competitive and I wanted to get good grades, but I thought it was for sort of uncreative people who were unoriginal and it was, you know, what the lesser, <laughs> what the lesser intellectual people did. No, no, I, no one here is taking that yeah, personally. <laughs> well, um, then I went to Yale and I maintained that opinion. For the first year, I took a, a, one of the reasons I went to Yale is they have an amazing great books course. So your first year, all you do is the classics, which was amazing. So I did no science and math, only classics. And then at Yale, you have to take one distribution requirement that's not in your major every two years, or they won't let you like become a junior. So sophomore year, I realized I had to do this. And so I found a science class that did not overlap with any of my like literary criticism or poetry classes and looked marginally interesting. And it was introduction to environmental science and I you know, met twice a week at 1 p.m. Um, excuse me, introduction to environmental engineering. Uh, and that class changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I was taking it pass fail. I was not doing all that well. Not maybe wasn't gonna fail, but like maybe, maybe could if I really didn't nail the final. And I studied maniacally hard for that final. Um, conveniently, if anybody's thinking of double majoring, if you do literature and uh, math science, you have papers due, but then two weeks later you have finals. It's actually a good schedule. 
So it was the only final I had. I studied maniacally and I nailed it. And the professor called me in to talk about it, I think also because he was like, how did that literature girl <laughs> get such a good grade on this test? Um, and his name was uh, Professor Bill Mitch. Um, and we talked about it and I talked about how exciting I had found it once I really dug in and how motivated I was becoming by, I already knew there was an environmental crisis, but I didn't really know. And he was like, you know, I have this theory that anyone can be an engineer and I've set up this special Bachelor of Arts in Engineering, which is designed to be a double major for unusual engineers. And I think you'd be a great candidate and you should be in this double major. And I went back to my dorm and I was like, ha ha ha, that's ridiculous. And I sort of sat there for five minutes and I said, nope, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be an environmentalist for the rest of my life. And it was that fast. And I came home and told my family that I was going to be an environmental science person. And they just thought it was ludicrous (laughs) Um, because I think I'm probably the first person in my family to do anything in the STEM oriented realm. And how was the program once you decided to do it? It was fantastic. And again, uh, Professor Mitch, he helped coach me through some classes that had mathematical prereqs that I didn't have. Um, I met amazing friends, one of whom, Teresa, who now works at Streetlight Data with me. Um, It was an extraordinary community. And environmental engineering in particular has people who are engineers with a really humanistic bent. So it was an extraordinary uh, major, double major. So after graduating, you joined the Rocky Mountain Institute. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us, how did you come to decide to join RMI, and what was it like being there? Sure. So um, as senior year was coming around, um, as I think a lot of people experience, a lot of our idealistic talk in college turned into people taking jobs at big firms, at the big consulting firms, at the accounting firms. And I was like, ugh, that depresses me. And then when I went to talk to the career office, I was like, oh, I want to do something environmental, like nonprofit. And I think the verbatim thing the woman told me was like, oh, yeah, you want to be like knocking on doors, talking to people about why they should care. I was like, no, (laughs) not that. And then my dad, uh, who had sort of simultaneously, not because of me, but in conjunction with me, moved into clean energy law as a specialty, he met a partner at Rocky Mountain Institute at a conference and heard about it. And he wrote me an email and said, you know, this thing is kind of cool. It's like this mix of nonprofit, but also practical. You should check out their website. And I met this really cool guy, Greg. Um, And so I applied online um, and got an interview for an internship. And it came down to an internship at Rocky Mountain Institute or Teach for America, which I was also considering strongly in New Orleans. And the Rocky Mountain Institute folks said, yeah, you know, this is an exciting place. Plus, we'll post you for your first six months in Hawaii to work on this special uh, (laughs) Hawaiian food slash volcano energy project. And I was like, just done. So I told all my friends I was moving to Hawaii and just moved from New Haven to Hawaii. That sounds amazing. Um, A lot of people in the clean technology space know the, uh, or know at least of the founder of RMI, um, Amory Levins. What was it like working with him? Yeah, so I was in Hawaii for six months working on special Rocky Mountain Institute Hawaii projects. And then I transferred to the Basalt office, uh, Old Snow Mass. Um, And I was on Amory's personal sort of research team for a few months, which means you sit every day in his house next to him with his wife bringing coffee, very intimate exposure to one of the sort of greatest minds in the recent history of environmentalism, um, which was extraordinary. And I did not appreciated at the time because to everyone there, it's normal, right? Amory always has some smart research assistants, you know, downstairs typing away. Uh, So it it was extraordinary. I got exposed to some meetings. I got to give presentations to vice presidents of major automakers. I was 22 and a half years old. I had no business doing any of this. Um, So it is, it was an extraordinary opportunity um, to be around him and to get access to the people he gets access to that early in my career. And then in 2009, I know you became an energy innovations analyst uh, for FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that come to be? What was it like being a regulator? Yes. So again, bringing it back to Amory. Amory is also one of the kindest, uh, most caring bosses one could possibly imagine. And I say that including myself. He's leagues beyond. And when... Uh, Obama got elected the first time I took a month off to work for the campaign and I was very excited and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, so I came back to our mind. I said, you know, Amory, I love it here, but I, I want to work for the Obama administration. And he was like, great. I know some people. And he basically set up an interview. So I was the first hire in the innovations group um, at the new Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that uh, John Wellinghoff, who was appointed, set up. So 
knowing good people helps. Um, and being a regulator was so much fun. I got to have so much impact. I still think that year at FERC, I probably had more impact on climate than I've had all the other years of my career. It is an incredibly leveraged position, and I plan and hope at some point in my career to go back to regulation because it is really where you get to just put your foot down and make things happen a certain way. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. So you left um, after about six months to start grad school at UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. which is where you first had the idea for Streetlight Data. But mm-hmm. before we get to that, how did you decide to go to Berkeley? And then what was it like as a grad student? So I was already applying to grad school when I was moving to DC. I knew that was the next thing. Um, a few things happened. Uh, John Holdren, who was at Harvard, went to the Obama administration as well, which sort of knocked that out of the running for most people in my field. So it came down to two schools, Berkeley and Stanford, pretty classic. Um, I, Berkeley was on the list because the Energy and Resources Group at Berkeley is the grandfather of the energy programs in the field. A ton of my friends from Rocky Mountain Institute went there. Um, and I uh, was touring both, and I was talking to some professors. And the professor at Stanford said, you know, I know we offer about twice as much money, but everyone at Berkeley is so much happier. Like, I would go there <laughs> if I could. <laughs> I don't mean that about all of Stanford. I'm sure there's a lot of Stanford folks here. But for that time, 2009, 10, at that department level, that was the advice I got. And I was like, well, that's sort of unambiguous. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to Berkeley. And it is that cohort, a group of cohorts at ERG, is the best group of people I've ever been a part of in my entire life. It is a wonderful group of people. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5-gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12-gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero-carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. At Berkeley, you were doing your research on your specialty at the time, electric vehicles, Mm -hmm. and working on your master's thesis, which was an app that showed users their driving data and then compared the cost and environmental benefits of various electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. So how did that research project transition into eventually what became Streetlight Data? Sure. Yeah. So when I had been at Rocky Mountain Institute and when I was at the FERC, um, I was working on electric vehicles the whole time. And all these questions came up. From the grid perspective, they'd say, well, you know, get data about how people drive and then project which parts of the grid are going to be hit hardest by charging needs. And I would go and look for the data and it wasn't there. Um, And also with electric vehicles, it seemed to me very clear that the biggest hindrance to electric vehicles being spread was people buying them. And one of the biggest reasons people didn't buy electric vehicles is because they misconstrued their own driving. Um, people translate the number of minutes they drive a day to the number of miles they drive a day very consistently. And if you get into transportation nerdiness like I have, you realize there's all these completely fascinating 
what an economist would call irrational beliefs around transportation. This is just one of them. This is one of the reasons it's such a fascinating field. So I could see, I was like, well, if I just, if people knew how many miles they drove a day, then they would realize that a 60-mile battery is totally fine. And that was the same year that iPhones and Androids started backgrounding, which means the ability to run two apps at once. So I was like, okay, I could make this thing monitor people's miles for the day, and then I could I could show them, and then they would know, and then they'd make the right economically rational decision, because I was still a little naive <laughs> about how economic decisions get made. So that was the original genesis. Um, and once I started doing that, I was like, oh, and if I get data on like a million people, I would have this amazing data set that I've been looking for this whole time about how everybody drives. So that was the simplistic lens I saw it through, which was only the electric vehicle adoption and infrastructure lens. Pause. Was there any part of you that thought, oh, it's kind of creepy that I want to track all these people? <laughs> I used to track my mom as my sample data. <laughs> I actually, one of the first things I, 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 before I made the phone work, there, there are these um, things that go in trucks that truck management companies use to track their drivers. And I put one in my mom's car and I would experiment like geotagging. So when she'd go to the gym, I would send her a text and be like, oh, mom, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Got it. So, so creepy. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Only because it's fun to creep out your own mom. But also, uh, and we, we can talk about this later, it was very clearly opted into, right? And that, that is the difference. People need to know. That's and important. if they know and they're getting a benefit from it, then it's, it's a good trade. Agreed. Agreed. I also went through significant uh, what's called IRB procedures at UC Berkeley about human, human research, mm-hmm. human subjects research mm-hmm. for all this. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay. So you were, you were doing, you had built this app. You thought naively if people just knew they would change their behavior right. and then what happened? <laughs> so turns out that's not how people work. Um, so we built the app and we did really cool technology on it, right? We, we, the data we collected from the phones, we would run through something called a, a drivetrain simulator and we could predict not just how generally you drove, but if you drove a leaf the same way you drove your normal car today, exactly how that leaf would perform and how much money would you save and how much carbon would you save. Compare that to a Volt and a Tesla. Those were the only three EVs on the market at the time. And it was awesome. Um, so that was the start. And then uh, came the California financial crisis, which affected a lot of things around the UC and sort of what eventually happened with Streetlight. Um, so we, uh, the, the California financial crisis hit the UC system about a year after it hit the news. There's there sort of a funding delay. Um, and I was on an NSF fellowship at the time. Uh, there was talk in the Senate about like evaporating the National Science Foundation grants. Um, there was talk at the UC about money just going away and everybody was freaking out. Um, and one of the mandates we got was, especially if you were in applied science, um, like I was, as opposed to pure science, like physics, core research, um, to try to get creative with funding. Um, so I uh, entered a business plan competition at Haas, the business school, because it had a cash prize with no restrictions. And I was like, oh, if I can take this cash and use it for my lab, that would be really useful. And so I just shifted the framing around what the app did to be about selling electric cars and marketing electric cars as opposed to educating. And that was sort of the first transition. And then what happened in the competition? Oh, we won. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. I had some great partners who were in computer science who helped me out. Um, It was great. Uh, We won. We got $40,000. And I was going to, I got a grad student assistant. um, And we were going to just have a great summer. And that was the plan. Gotcha. And at that point, did you have a sense that this is going to be a business? I'm going to turn this into a company? No. I had no interest in starting a company. Also, I had never worked at a for-profit company. I still, Streetlight is the first for-profit company I've ever worked at. Um, so I had no interest in that whatsoever. Um, but because of the contest, a few things sort of, a few things happened. Um, one, which is uh, a big deal for a grad student, uh, my advisor passed away very suddenly from pancreatic cancer, which is a very big deal. And we were very close and we had this research mission we were on, which is around driving data and understanding the way it was changing in America. And so with Lee Shipper's death, who is an extraordinary transportation visionary, um, I felt a little less connected to the university. Um, And it also let some thoughts that had been, I'd been sort of keeping down bubble up around how I wasn't sure. I always thought I was going to be a professor. Even when I was in literature, I thought I was going to be a literature professor. And as I was in academia, I started to wonder if this is really the best way to impact the environment, is writing these papers and doing this research. And I started to doubt it. 
And with Lee's death, those thoughts got a little higher up in my brain. But then the other thing that happened is that was right around the contest time. Because of that, some people in venture and business were following up with me and saying, you know, that was not a terrible idea. Like, that had some legs. You, sh you should think about it. Um, so over the course of those few months with those things happening, I started to say, hey, you know, I'm in the Bay. I'm not going to be here forever. Like, that's what people do here, right? They make a startup. <laughs> <laughs> that is and what I was like, do. I want to be of the moment. I want to be a millennial. Like, so <laughs> I started to really think about it. Um, and so after Lee's death, I was talking to a lot of my old mentors about what to do, um, including my old boss at Rocky Mountain Institute, whose name is Michael Berlowski, who I had uh, gotten into transportation with. And I was talking to him about it. He, was all, he also knew Lee. We were talking about what I should do. I talked about my idea, and he's like, you know, there's this board member at Rocky Mountain Institute named Ruben Munger who has a fund called Vision Rich Capital um, that is an angel fund and does early-stage venture capital investing, and he always told me that he was so impressed with that one presentation you gave that time to the board, and he always wants to know what you're up to. I bet he'd fund a business. And I was like, that's not a thing, Michael. Like, <laughs> I, like I met that guy for like eight minutes. He was like, no, seriously, no, seriously. Like, I really like him. We're working together. There's other projects. You should meet him. He's going to be out in San Francisco sometime soon. Next time he's out there, he would love to talk to you about it. He was really impressed. He always, like, asks how you're doing. I was like, oh. So we had breakfast, and basically he gave me $250,000. And that <laughs> is how it started. And again, it's the, the network of being a part of the energy community really came through. Because that's not the way it's supposed to happen. For everyone listening who's not in the Bay Area, you're just reinforcing this idea that these <laughs> checks just like fly out of people's pockets at meals. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he made me write a proposal. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, it was still all electric vehicle focused. And what Vision Ridge was working on at the time was also very electric vehicle focused. So there was a lot of synergy. Um, so now you have a quarter million dollars. Yeah. What do you do with that? Oh, lots of questions come up. Like, do you drop out of your PhD? Yeah, do you? I don't yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. I talked to Berkeley about it, and Berkeley was very interested in being seen as a hub for spinning out businesses in the same way Stanford and MIT are. So they were extremely supportive of giving me every flexibility I needed to do both. So I stayed a grad student for the next, I stayed a grad student for almost another two years at the beginning of Streetlight. Um, and I was still like, doing my qualifying exams and like preparing for orals and like submitting prospectuses and all that on the side. Um, and the first thing I did, I made many mistakes. I hired some consultants to help me who were, there's a whole industry of people who you can hire to help you as a young startup. And there's a parallel industry of people who have contests to help you as a young startup. And both are viable ways to get it done, but one is more expensive than the other, which is the hiring the consultants, which is the path I went because I had money, so that was open to me. And in the end, it got me forward, but it's something that if you can avoid spending $50,000, $75,000 on, might be a good idea. Um, so I hired some consultants to help me figure out what on earth I was doing because I had no idea. Um, and I hired, which was much smarter, some contract developers to build a more robust version of the tool I had been playing around with, because I'm not really a coder. I'm just sort of a sketch coder. Um, so that was the first thing I did. Uh, and eventually, through working with these consultants and networking, I had developed a pitch deck that was solely focused on vehicle electrification as the application for this. Um, and it was very clear that I wasn't quite enough of a computer scientist to pull this off, and I knew that too. And I also had no experience in business. And so I was getting two messages, um, one that you need someone who can be a better developer, and two, that you need, it was always referred to as a gray hair, somebody who's been around the block with startups a bunch of time who can like have that like calm leadership view. Um, so I, uh, first, I was introduced to several gray hairs and ended up bringing on one as sort of an interim CEO, and then quickly thereafter, uh, through the electric vehicle charging nerd network, I was introduced uh, to a guy who, uh, they were like, oh, there's this guy, Paul. He's had three really successful data companies. He's way too senior to work with you, but I think you guys, he could be a good mentor to you. He might know someone young who's like a young version of himself. Um, now Paul's going to think I'm calling him old. Um, and so we were introduced and like had a couple lunches about this idea and just hit it off intensely. And so he came on as my technical co-founder, and he's still the CTO of Streetlight. Um, and there were a few more adventures with the, 
advice about don't run your own company, get somebody older to run it for you, which we can go into if you like. Sure. Okay. So <laughs> when I look back at our early pitches and business plans, like I laugh at it. If some young, what was I, 27, I think at the time grad student came to me with this, I'd be like, no, that's not going to get funded. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, so in many ways, it was an expensive way to get over the hump I needed to get over. And that doesn't mean it was the wrong way. Like, it's a, it's a serious hump to get over just the cluelessness at the beginning that I had. But in the end, it became very clear to all three of us that it wasn't his idea, it wasn't his passion. He didn't have the industry expertise, the drive, just the sort of, I will stay up all night to get this one little paragraph right, maniacal attachment to the idea that I did and that it needed to be mine. So I don't know if I could have been the CEO the whole time, but for the first 15 months of Streetlight, I wasn't. I was the chief scientific officer. And then Paul and I switched it up and I became the CEO and Paul became the CTO. And that was the right path for us. Nice. Um, it's in the name, Streetlight Data. Yes. So you need data. Oh, yes. How did you, what type of data did you need? Uh, and how did you get access to it, especially early on? Sure. So that's another reason money helps. Because um, Streetlight, at first, we thought, oh, we'll get like a million, five million people to use our cool app, and then they'll give us all their data, and then we'll be able to do these cool analytics on it. But it turns out, if you're trying to get people to use an app, you're competing with Angry Birds, and you will lose every time. <laughs> so it was actually, we had this, we pitched for our Series A, we pitched probably 100 firms. Um, and one guy, this associate at Battery Ventures, credit to them, afterwards, he wrote, instead of just your normal, like, thanks, no thanks email, or just never emailing you again, which is totally the norm, he was like, look, I like you guys, but the problem is you're running two businesses. One business, you're trying to convince all these people to download this app because they're supposed to care about vehicle electrification, which I don't think people do, except for weirdos like you. He didn't say it, but that's what he <laughs> meant. And then two, you have this idea that you'll use all this data to like learn amazing things about transportation. And he said, a good startup can't be two businesses. You can just be one business, so you guys need to choose. And we're like, huh. I don't like getting rejected, but that was really, that was very smart. And he was like, couldn't you just buy this data somewhere? And I thought, actually, I can. Because even in what, 2012, if you had a navigation device, there were red, yellow, and green lines telling you where traffic was. And I knew, because I was from transportation, that there was this whole network of people trading data off the cellular towers to make that happen. So I was like, maybe I could buy it from them and tell them that I want to use it in a different way. And so that was the pivot, that was the insight that changed us from trying to run two businesses to one business. And it's more like a factory, right? We source raw material. We now have hundreds of different smartphone apps, dozens of different connected car and connected truck providers. We buy it like you buy any raw material. We do price competition. We, you know, we negotiate. We have three-year fixed-cost contracts. We do all this kind of stuff like any raw material supply. And then we process that data in our factory and sell a value-added product. So we became, a, in some ways, a much more traditional business with mm -hmm. that pivot. Mm -hmm. Today, what percent of people in the United States' data do you use or have access to? On a typical month, we have some access to about 25% of the U.S. and Canadian and Mexican populations. That doesn't mean we get every trip of every device. It just means something kind of useful comes in. So a lot of what we do is about, um, first and foremost, all the data that comes to us is de-identified. So we don't know it's Emily, you're some long-hashed you know, encrypted ID. Um, but one of the services we provide is we aggregate that data in very complex ways so that the analytics we provide to our end users describe what a group of people does. Our client doesn't care that you drove across the Bay Bridge. Our client cares that there's a traffic jam on the Bay Bridge and they're clustered with these origins and destinations and that's where a bus route should go if you want to mitigate that traffic jam. We do a ton of aggregation. Um, with all these different suppliers, but we also do a ton of statistical normalization, which is very tricky and requires a lot of other types of data. Gotcha. So early on, you were just able to buy the data that you needed. You realized you could buy it rather than try to yeah. build it yourself. We bought our first chunk of data uh, for $50,000, which seems like a lot of money at the time, though if you saw our data build today, you know it's not very much at all. And we bought it in a semi-aggregated format because they won't just sell it to anybody. You have to to show that you can handle this level of sensitive data appropriately. Um, you can't just sort of dump it on the internet in a GitHub repository. Um, and we had to show that we would actually turn it around to make money. So what we wanted to do is say, hey, give us the data, and when we make money, then we'll pay you. But why, like, 
Now we can negotiate that kind of deal. <laughs> then, no. So we bought the first chunk of data for Northern California. Um, and that was, we then we just basically hand-coded this sort of fake app on top of it. And I remember I like was in PowerPoint making it look like there was a heat map, but really I was pasting like PowerPoint <laughs> transparent red boxes on this map. <laughs> and that's what Paul and I did. And we just like made it perfect for our first sort of two deliveries. Yeah, fake it till you yeah. make it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I know it's hard to break into the mobility and transportation space as a startup. How did you go about getting your first customers? Who was your very first customer? My first customer was Mid-Atlantic Convenience Stores. Um, so the other thing that happened, which I think is relevant to this audience, is when we got our first seed funding from Vision Ridge, we were energy-focused, electric vehicle-focused. But as we went out on the market and got 100 rejections, the main reason they were citing is because it was transportation. So this is, Uber was still like a tiny little luxury car app. Like nobody thought transportation was a market. And certainly we were like, oh, we want to sell to governments. And the VC industry was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever we show what we're doing, they're like, what you should sell is data to help retailers do site selection, which actually, it's an infrastructure decision, right? Should your Chipotle be here or here? That's an infrastructure investment. Everywhere. Yeah, every, everywhere. Um, so for, our, for the period after our seed, but through our whole Series A time, we were on the surface, on the website, on our pitch, a real estate site selection company. And secretly on the side, we had an interest in transportation planning and infrastructure. And we weren't allowed to really talk about it. So we said, okay, we'll go after, we'll prove that we can sell to site selection and convenience stores and gas stations are the most, I thought, transportation relevant. And everybody said, you're not going to get investment until you have a real customer. So I was home in Richmond, Virginia, for some reason, I don't know, beach week. And I read a blog about cold calling. And I was like, I'm going to cold call and just go visit people. So I started calling all the convenience stores that were headquartered in like a 50-mile radius. And one guy at Mid-Atlantic Convenience Stores took my call and invited me to follow up. And I made this, again, fake PowerPoint with the boxes analysis of one of his stores, and he thought it was awesome, and he paid $2,000 for us to analyze 10 of his stores. And that nice. was our first client, and I still have the check. Nice. <laughs> and then as it evolved, what did, what did customers start to look like as you got more traction? So for those two and a half years we were like raising Series A and post-Series A, we had more retail clients, um, but it was, it was hard. Like retail was suffering uh, competing against electronic shopping. Um, and the site selection people got no budget. The marketing people got a ton of budget. Um, and at the same time, I was still interested in transportation um, and electric vehicles. Um, but again, it was hard to break in. So funny story, I was at, uh, again, my, my friend from undergrad, I was at her wedding in Connecticut. And everyone was drunk. And like I think there was axe throwing. Everyone was dancing oh around. God. It was a very fun wedding on a farm. And there was some guy, and I was talking to him. And he was like, oh, you know, do you live here? I was like, oh, no, I actually live you know, in Oakland. He's like, oh, I live in Oakland. I was like, oh, weird. What do you do? He's like, I'm a transportation planner. And I was like, oh, I'm in transportation data. So it was this guy, Leon, who worked at a transportation consulting firm called Fair and Peers. And I told him what he did. He thought it was awesome. He had just started his new job. He was trying to make a name for himself. He's like, I'm going to invite you to do a lunch and learn at my company. So we did that and met with his boss and his boss's boss. And they were like, that's a cute idea. And we were like, oh, can we do a project with you? He's like, why would we trust you? Like, why would we trust you? We're making decisions about like billions of dollars of infrastructure investment. So a few months passed, and then the, his boss, whose name is Mike Wallace, called me. He was like, so we had this project. We had another data provider. It got really screwed up, and it's a disaster. And if you can do anything, we will give you the money we were going to give them. And I was like, okay. So we, like again, Paul and I hand-coded everything and delivered it, and it worked. And so all of a sudden, we had this little reputation in the transportation industry. So... We were actually making more money with faster close and better return on investment in the transportation industry, but it was nowhere on our website and nowhere in our pitch for years. So it was a real weird mix. At that point, did you start to shift and kind of come out of the transportation closet? I had to have a big board meeting, yes. That is exactly what it was like. You know, the other hard thing at the time is a lot of my eco friends, I think they didn't say it. I think they thought it was a bit of a sellout because we were working with retailers. And actually, driving for shopping is now the largest category of driving in America, and that's what my whole PhD would have been about if I ever finished it. Like, it's very important to get retailers in better site selection for reduced VMT. But 
there was a lot of emotion. That was really hard feeling from my eco people that I wasn't directly working on the problem. So it was very refreshing when we came out of the closet. And when we were going in to start pitching our Series B, I had a meeting with my board and I was like, look, you guys have been seeing this bifurcated model. All of the KPI, I've spent two years, you've been telling me I'm wrong, but I have the numbers, I have the KPIs, I have the data from what we've sold, transportation is a better market, I want to pitch this as a pivot. And they said yes. And then Uber. And then also that, t- I mean, if Uber hadn't happened, and just the maniacal funding around Uber, it also meant that transportation and government were not sort of run for the hills words <laughs> in the VC context. Um, so you, in 2013, raised a $7 million Series A. Uh, what was it like raising that first round, and who participated? It was very hard. That was the most rejections. And again, when I look back at the pitch decks, like, I would have rejected me too. In <laughs> um, the end, Vision Ridge led the Series A, and Deutsche Telekom Ventures was the equal stakes participant because um, we were coming up with a really creative way to add value to an asset that was created by the cellular network. So it made sense for them from a strategic level. Gotcha. And then as far as future rounds, in 2016, you raised a 10 million Series B. Yes. In 2018, a 10 million Series C mm-hmm. for a total of about $30 million. Mm-hmm. Um, how were those later rounds different from raising the A? And what lessons did you learn about fundraising along the way? I think um, I was a lot less arrogant the second and third times around. Like I used to think, oh, I don't want to follow this format online of what VCs want to see. Like they need to get what I'm saying. No. Like just get it in the format. It'll go a lot better. Um, The Series B at first went easier, and then we had our lead drop out at the 11th hour because of a shift in their control, and I thought we were going under. Uh, I got the call. um, They had just stopped. Again, had been ghosting me, very immature. And one of my investors pretty much flew to the city they were at to be like, what are you doing? And they called me, and it was at our – I don't think anybody knows this except Paul. We had our all-hands retreat, and it was in Oakland – and then we still had a staff of about maybe 17 people, and we were at this, like, rah, rah, like, all-hands retreat. And my uh, board member, Tomas, called me and was like, look, I talked to them. They're pulling out. He was my Deutsche Telekom board member, and I, I thought we were done. Wow. And I was like, oh, God. But conveniently, there had been this other firm that had done this from – that has called Osage University Partners that – who's wonderful, who I love because they saved the day. Um, and they specifically invest in startups – that spin out of universities that have technical academic founders. And they'd been calling me every six months for like four years. And it was like this joke, like, oh, this guy, I talk to him every six months, nothing will ever happen. And he kind of knew what was happening. He'd been kind of interested. I called him back and he had warned me a little bit about this firm that dropped out. He was like, they are volatile. Like we've had bad experiences. I was like, ah, whatever. They're a brand name firm. What do you know? He was right. So I called him. We met at an airport. I told him what happened. He was like, we got it. Wow. And save the day, and wow. I really thought we were going down. Wow. Did you tell anyone at that retreat what was no. happening? <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even tell Paul because I didn't think he could keep the poker face during the retreat. Wow. Wow, wow. <laughs> it, was, it was ugly. But in the Series C, though, by that point, we had the numbers, right? Like, we have clients. Our clients all renew. They like us. And also by that point, I was just done with Sand Hill Road. Like I wasn't going to go to the traditional investors because all of our investors are not from San Francisco and they're not typical VCs. They're either strategics who get that transportation is a weird market and governments do take a long time to sell to. And they're interested in the mission. And I was like, that's the only type of person I'm pitching this time. And that's, you know, it was, it's about focus. And I knew what I, the type of people I wanted on my board. And I knew the type of investors that could see the things that a traditional SaaS VC they see as a weakness, mm-hmm. I see as some of our strengths. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And with that capital, how, how has the product evolved? A lot. Um, so it started out, I mean, the first time we made a product that looked like something was, you know, 2013. Just design trends have changed. I think that the first product was clearly made by me and a bunch of engineers. Like, for a long time, the company was me and six or seven engineers, and then uh, our awesome first two employees, Catherine Manzo and Kara Selk, one who does privacy, which is critical for what we do, and the other who helped me with sales and marketing. There were no design people. There were no product people. And actually, that was fine in the beginning because we were also selling to really nerdy transportation engineers. 
I think the biggest evolution has been realizing that it's not fine and we need a product person. We need Barton and Miles who are here today and we need Supritha and we need design thinking and we need to be able to cross the chasm between just selling to nerds like us to selling to everybody in the transportation sphere and like breaking out of the nerdiness. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. Um, So as you're building the company, what was coming really easily to you and what was most difficult? Definitely the easiest part of Streetlight is the technology for me and I think for the whole company. Because the technology, you're at your desk and it's kind of in your control how it works or not. The things that are hardest are the things that are not in my control. So in the first few years, the hardest part was data supply. So we got our Series A in April 2013 and we just reached a bigger agreement to license nationwide data from cellular towers. And then a young man named Edward Snowden dropped some pretty serious PR bombs about what telcos were doing with customer data and the entire data market froze which is a problem if your entire business relies on getting this data. If it had happened before Series A, again, I think there's no way we would have survived. Um, But we had enough cash in the bank, we slowed our hiring plans, and we started negotiating with some of the connected car companies who had different data pressures. Um, But then we went back to working with telcos, and the telcos, they are big, and they do not care about my, like, $250,000 data purchase. And... It was brutal. Like the times, the one time we drank during the day in the early years was when a data contract that we've been working on for like a year to get them to let us pay them a million dollars for this data just evaporated because someone felt like it. Wow. That was the one time. Do you remember (laughs) what you drank? A Bloody Mary. (laughs) It was at Marlowe, if you guys have ever been. Um, What makes Streetlight data better than your competitors? (sighs) So... So many things. Um, <laughs> I think, well, we have two types of competitors. We have, our biggest competitor is still the status quo. So in the transportation industry, data collection traditionally is done three ways. The most common way is to make it up. You're like, oh, a bunch of wealthy people live in Walnut Creek. There's a bunch of high-paid jobs in San Francisco. Let's just gravity model, assume there's a flow. That's the most common thing. The next most common thing is to do a survey which is always cumbersome, but now survey response, especially with low-income people, immigrants, and non-English speakers, is just abysmal survey response rates. So not only do you have bad data, you have biased data. And the surveys are done like every 10 years, maybe. And then the third thing that's become more popular is you put up sensors. Like um, if you go up to a a stoplight and you see like a wire in the road, Mm -hmm. that might be a vehicle counting sensor. Or um, uh, if you are driving and you hit one of these toll sensors, if you're driving on one of the newer highways, those are sensors. And there's radars and videos. And all of those are incredibly expensive, not just to install, but to maintain. So the reason we're better than the status quo is because you can look up the answers on your desktop in seconds, and the sample is bigger and richer and has far more context about the type of people. And our sample is remarkably unbiased, both because of the way we pull the original data and because of our normalization techniques. So it's just better, faster, richer, and for everywhere in seconds. So it's, it's a good ROI against the status quo. Um, of course, everybody's comfortable with the status quo, which is a pretty strong argument for the status quo. Um, in the big data space in transportation, um, we don't have any perfect on-the-nose competitors, but we have people who like overlap with a part of our Venn diagram circle. I think our main difference is that what we have is an interactive platform that's meant to let a transportation professional sort of let their curiosity run wild. When we get the right client, they just start coming up with all kinds of stuff we never thought of. We've started having, again, I didn't think this would be successful. I was totally wrong. This is why you have other people on your team. We've started having these customer summits and these road shows where the clients show each other what they do. I, hmm. I did not, I, I could never have come up with some of this stuff. Like, we started digging in because somebody asked a question like, oh, have you ever done anything for parks? I was like, no, we do transportation. We have like 20 parks projects hmm. that people just come up with these amazing use cases. So that's our main difference is that we let that creativity become unleashed by this iterative reactive data platform. Um, most of our competitors in big data, you would call them up and say, I need to know how many people are going across the Bay Bridge and what percent of them end up in Fremont on the other side. And then they'll return that answer to you, which is useful but is not interactive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And going back to that retreat, uh, was, that, was that the single hardest day of Streetlight Data, or if not, what was? That was not, because by that point I had a big team. And also the board members, um, uh, Thomas and Bill, um, who I was talking to through that, they were like, this is not it. Like They were like, we, this is not worth going under for. Like I had people with me, and, and Paul, of course. Um, 
so that wasn't the hardest day. The hardest day was earlier, before the Series B. Um, we had closed our first mega contract, um, which was like, I believe, $862,000, more or less, <laughs> um, with the Virginia Department of Transportation. And this was like it. Like, we'd made it. And closing a large government contract is an extraordinary amount of paperwork. And it was like contracted through, a, it was very complicated. And we had 17 employees, no less, 13 employees. And I knew we had closed the contract, but we had staked everything on this contract. And then they sent me an email and said, okay, yeah, the payment will come in 60 to 90 days. And I had like $10,000 in the bank. And I had payroll. And I was like, this can't, there must be a solution to this. And I called my bankers. They were like, oh, yeah. I was like, can you loan me money? They're like, no. Bank of America said, no, you're like too small. We don't do that. I was like, but what do I? And I called my board members. I don't think I was, I was too afraid to tell them how scared I was. I wasn't truly transparent with them. I called my mentor. Nobody had anything for me. Paul and I were debating moving our own savings to cover payroll for a couple months um, and like getting ready to do that. And I just Googled, I just sat on my bed and cried and Googled all day. And I realized through, I just didn't know the keywords. And what I was actually looking for is something very boring called accounts receivable financing. So I ended up filling out these online applications that were like, money tomorrow. Like, just send us your invoice. And it was just very, and I called Bank of America back. I was like, should I do this? They're like, oh, we don't recommend that. And I was like, well, what do you recommend I do? Bill. Like, <laughs> and, and I just filled out all these applications and, and one guy who ran like a three-person shop in Oklahoma called me back on a Saturday. And I was like, I, it was pretty clear in my voice that I was crying. And he was like, no, no, like, is it a government contract? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, those are pretty secure. Like, and so he walked me through the whole thing. I FedExed him, like his nice receptionist was calling me. And they, at an unbelievably high interest rate, loaned us the money we were going to get paid. And it worked. What was the interest rate? Oh, God, it was like 20%. But that's, you know, it was only 60 days. It was so awful because I felt so alone. Hmm. Um, and that's why, I mean, I've been doing Street Life for almost eight years now. And the past three years, five years, three years, four years, people are like, oh, it must be so hard. I'm like, no, this is nothing. Hmm. Like, when mm -hmm. you're that alone, it's just infinitely harder. Yep. And all I need to know is accounts receivable financing. So it's very nice to have an actual financial person. I have Matt, who's my VP of finance. I have Darlene, my COO. And now they know all that stuff. It's great. How have your strengths evolved? Uh, I think um, I first got promoted into management when I was 24 at Rocky Mountain Institute, which though I've talked a lot about how much I love RMI, I think was a huge mistake. I was managing people way older than me with way more experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I was ambitious and I, you know, was totally into it, but I did not know how to manage and I didn't get training on how to manage. And it was brutal. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I was very good at it. And I don't think it would have been much fun to report to me at that time. Um, but that did teach me uh, what it was to be a good employee, which was very useful. Like the best, I think the best employees are the ones who've been managers for a little while and they're like, nope. But then you get what it's like on the other side. So that unpleasant year, I think, gave me a lot of more patience as a manager. Um, I think the main way my strengths have evolved is a weird thing to say, but is caring less and taking things a lot less personally. Like, I used to just be gutted at every rejection and every time Paul and I got mad at each other and every setback, I'd just have panic attacks and it was... I just realized I was gonna I was gonna go insane. Like I I just was gonna break down, and so I was like, well, I'll just do straight light for another two months. I don't care. It might fail. Whatever. And then I started to make the best decisions ever because they weren't so freighted. So caring less sounds like a negative thing, but it's actually not. And you could phrase it more positively. You could say it's not about take, it's about not taking it personally. Mm -hmm. And I, I sometimes have this imaginary video game in my head where there's super CEO Lara. And if I'm taking it too personally, I'm like, what would this imaginary perfect CEO do? Who's in my head, like, looks like, like the Mario Brothers, like the earlier Mario Brothers, like the 2D one. And then I just imagine what she would do, and I depersonalize it, and I try to do that. So learning that distance is good for my emotional health, which I knew it would be, but has been remarkable for my CEO abilities, because mm -hmm. I make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Last few questions before we move into our high voltage round. Uh, where are you in Streetlight Data today and where will you be in five years? 
We have very many astonishing things that we do today. For example, we have 70 employees, which is, I think, mind-numbing. Um, we work on 3,000 different transportation projects a month, um, which is insane across the US, Canada, and Mexico. Canada and Mexico we launched recently, and it's been awesome. Um, so we're international. We have our first office in Vancouver, so we're totally international. It has three people. Um, we, right now, I think, what it, when I knew, actually, Teresa and I were talking about this at a conference recently. When you go up, it used to be I go, I say, oh, I work at Streetlight Data, and they're like, oh, what's that? And you explain. Everyone now in our little world knows. So I think we've become the market leader in our very specific market in the U.S., um, and we have definitely changed the game. I had a guy from Florida tell me, he's like, you know, oh, it's good to meet you. He worked for a toll authority. He's like, I was trying to get an engineer to just do a normal turning movement study. Nobody will do stuff anymore. Everybody wants to bring in this streetlight data, whatever. And I was like, ha, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want, what our mission is to be a part of every decision that matters for transportation infrastructure. And I have lots of opinions about why transportation infrastructure, the thing you build that lasts 30 years, that's what you want to influence. Like I could bug you about taking the bus every day or I can make the bus line go exactly where you want it to be. That's the bigger leverage impact. So I want to be a part of every decision like that. We're maybe 7% of the way there in the US, which is a good start. But the next thing I want Streetlight to be in five years Transportation has always been hard and expensive, but transportation is not original to say is changing at an insane rate. Um, there's some things that I think get more press than actual impact they have, but autonomy is coming. Scooters are definitely coming. Um, a change in what it means to commute is coming. There's a shift in the peaking in traffic in most American cities. It used to be very concentrated, now it's very spread out. That really changes a lot of the ways you think about things. Shifts are changing. What we want is to use data so that if you can measure consistently how all these changes are happening, and if you can measure the way they interact. Nobody cares about a scooter. Nobody really cares about a scooter. They care about the way the scooter interacts with a pedestrian and the way the scooter interacts with a car. That's why they're getting so much press. So we want to be the ones to be measuring robustly and accurately and transparently that interaction as we move forward into this wild future so that we can make good decisions, and if it turns out we made a bad decision, we can hold ourselves accountable and change course. That's where I want to be in five years. I like it. All right, we're going to move into the high voltage round. Oh uh, first question, and the question that is most indicative of who you are. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, I would definitely be a sea otter. Like, there's no question. <laughs> sea, I love swimming and all boating activities, and they have so much fun, and they hold hands with their friends. It's really cute. <laughs> what could be better? What inspires you? Uh... Literature still, um, I, and arts. I gave up a career, and sometimes when I see my friends who are still in an arts and literature career, it, it hurts. Um, so I try to be a passionate audience member of literature and art and use that for inspiration. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, <laughs> what would it be? I'd probably be a high school chemistry teacher. That, the thing I struggle with at startups is, I mean, I don't spend my days taking carbon out of the atmosphere. I spend my days making PowerPoints and managing people, and it feels indirect. And I feel like if I was a chemistry teacher, I would know I was making somebody's life better every day, and that would be very satisfying. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? <laughs> my parents. No question. When have you failed? Uh, so many times. Um, I failed... There are many times I failed temporarily, like raising our funds. I failed many times before we succeeded. But I think I had some early management fails um, where I was too inflexible and we lost some people who, if I had learned how to work with people different from me earlier on, we could have kept them and thrived together. What's the best investment you've ever made? When I was in ninth grade, we went on a family trip. Right before ninth grade, we went on a family trip to Seattle, and then we went to Alaska. And while we were there, I had an allowance. My parents told me I could go shopping. And there was this amazing store that we didn't have in the East called North Face. And I got a hip, like bright yellow North Face backpack. And I was the first kid in high school to have the North Face backpack right as that was coming. And I still have it to this day, and it's the most useful <laughs> device I've ever owned. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Oh, this, I used to think, uh, I grew up very lucky um, in a very supportive environment. I went to a very 
progressive, even though it was a technical major where there were lots of women in my major uh, in undergrad. I went to an amazing grad school, which is more than half women in a STEM field. And I thought that, yes, obviously women had been oppressed, but now that I had all these credentials, it didn't matter. It was just about you. And having, and I thought that for years, the first few years of Streetlight, and now having been through Silicon Valley and the startup scene for eight years, basically I didn't think systemic racism would, uh, sorry, sexism would apply to me. And I was wrong. Gives me chills of recognition. Um, What would you say to women who are listening to this? Uh, Even if it's, it's not nice what I have to say to women, like even if it is affecting you, you can't show it. You like it's very, it's very hard. You get a lot of flack for speaking out about it while you're still on your way up, and I think it's it's incumbent on women who have achieved and hit certain milestones, whether that be the tenure track professorship, whether that be being at Series C and having a lot of people work for you. It is so much easier to speak out about it once you've succeeded. Just the the, the pressure to do it when I was still coming up, the pressure to speak out about the men who harassed me. If 20, if I had a 24-year-old mentee who told me some of the things that had happened, were happening to her that were happening to me, I mean, I would just be calling their bosses, and I do that now, right? But I just couldn't. I didn't know that. I, I just couldn't then. So I think it's a lot about having older female and male mentors. Like, I had plenty of male mentors who came through with me on these. Paul has been extraordinary in helping me deal with some of this stuff. Um, but... It's also just about not taking it personally. And this isn't coherent as I would have liked, but it's easy when you know they're sexually harassing you. And it's easy when you know that they're sexist. Because like, I had a few friends who were associates in venture capital groups who would call me and say, you can't come pitch my partners because whenever a woman comes, once she leaves, they like, you know, talk about her boobs. So I was like, okay, I know that's a sexist. Like, that's fine. I know that's why they're rejecting me. What's really hard is when you can't tell. Like, if you don't know you're being rejected because of sexism or because your idea isn't good enough, and maybe they don't know, right? Because it's, you know, there's all sorts of unconscious biases. So the advice I'd give the younger woman is just try to pretend it's not happening and act as if it's not happening, and that's the best way. So you know know it is happening, but you have to act as if it's not to create, to pull people along with you into the reality that you want it to be. Um, But also know that, most people, especially these days, like this was all pre-Me Too stuff and pre a lot of the Silicon Valley scandals, most people are totally on your side and will be with you, you know, 100% of the way. It's the outliers. But those outliers, that one comment, that one grab, like mm-hmm. 10 years later still just makes my skin crawl. Yep, definitely. When are you your best self? That's a great question. Thank you. I really like... Um, speaking. I really like public speaking. I really like speaking with clients. Um, that's when I feel like I see what our product is doing and I get the most excited. Um, but sometimes I'm my best self when I'm like at home drinking wine and watching BBC Murder Mysteries, which is like my number one way to relax. I also feel like my best self then and just in a different way. What is your worst trait? Impatience. Um, it is very hard for me to wait for a slow talker to finish a sentence. <laughs> Really hard. Do you do you walk fast? Yes. Slow walkers probably bug you. Huh? Oh, they make me so mad. There was this whole pod of them between Bart and my office today, and they were all like meandering along together, chit chatting. And I was like, "Look, there are like a hundred people on Third Street. Y'all need to move." It was not cool. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be other than slow walkers? <laughs> Loud chewers would be second. Um, <laughs> My team knows, like, they don't eat in meetings with me because I will also get very impatient. Wait, no. Have, it's, it's, it's a thing, right? Oh, There's I a have name. misophonia. Have, yeah. When that article came out that, like, acknowledged that that was a thing and not just me being a total jerk, it made me so happy. <laughs> um, uh, I would change, uh, everything I would change is around uh, early childhood education. I think that's, like, the highest leverage place when people learn and have, you know, fertile minds, and that's what leads to good citizens and smart decision-making. So it would be all around deep investment in like year three through eight free education. Of the tens of thousands of people who will hear this, if there was just one person who was going to actually hear it, who would you want that to be? Oh, gosh. I mean, my parents are definitely going to hear it. Uh, I think I'd like Professor Mitch to hear it, and I think I'll send it to him because he really shifted the course of my career. 
Uh, what, I'm sorry, uh, finish these sentences for me. If you really knew me, you would know. I like to cook as a form of relaxation, even if it's turning out terribly. <laughs> Companies fail because... All the founders wanted to do was start something, and they didn't care about the thing itself. Success is... Waking up in the morning and being reasonably excited 50% of the time that you're going to have a day that matters. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. I think I would have done more... I think I would have joined more clubs and activities. I think that as I've gotten older, my social group has narrowed to be a lot of people like me. Um... And that's something I've started to regret a lot now that I'm, you know, really old. (laughs) (laughs) If the world knew me for one thing, it would be? I hope for reducing vehicle miles traveled in petroleum-powered vehicles. (laughs) (laughs) I'm most proud of? I'm most proud of uh, the people who work at Streetlight and the fact that they appear to like working there. (laughs) (laughs) Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? complete comfort with failure on every level um, and using that comfort as a reason not to fail. With that, please give a huge round of applause for Laura Schull. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.